You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. All right, we got to put our thinking caps on for one more session. And uh, I'm arguing that the Bible is God-breathed. And because it's God-breathed, it possesses the very authority of Almighty God. And therefore, the ultimate authority. There's that term I've been using. And some of you are thinking, okay, what you've said so far, if we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, because it says it's the Word of God. And you are understanding me correctly if you've come to that conclusion. If you said, okay, I'm hearing your argument, Rick, and what you're saying is, You believe the Bible to be the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. That is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Because the Bible says it's the Word of God. And you're you're thinking to yourself, all right, if I go and I tell my, if I go tell my cousin Jim Bob here who, uh, you know, that you should believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. Well, Jim Bob is going to say, well, wait a second. There's all these other books that say that they are the Word of God. Uh, Should I believe that they are the Word of God? Now, to that I answer no. Um, We shouldn't believe a book to be the Word of God simply because it claims to be the Word of God. So then why should we believe the Christian Bible and its claim to be the Word of God? Let me give you a short answer with one word. What's the one word? Resurrection. And the five-word answer is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this isn't the only reason, by the way. We could talk about other reasons. We could talk about lordship. We could talk about salvation. We could talk about other reasons. But I, again, uh, if I went into three or four of these, or I think or even two of these, we might leave here today forgetting everything. I don't want that to happen. When we go through that door, I want us to be able to answer this question with one word or five words. Uh, I want us to be able to answer this question so we can answer it succinctly, you know, oftentimes the people we're talking to don't have the patience or the time to hear a long, drawn-out discussion. And really, I can tell you from personal experience, I've botched it up giving them too much information. Because after a little bit, they start to kind of go like this. And, you know, then what do they leave with? They don't leave with, with anything. But if you give them one, resurrection. Well, why do you believe? Cody, why do you believe the Bible's the Bible? Resurrection. Oh, Okay. Now, maybe you get time to connect the dots, maybe you don't, but still you've given an answer. And it's not a small answer. It's not the only answer, but it's a big one. And by the way, we're stepping into our last topic. We're stepping into the sufficiency of Scripture. I haven't... One of the problems I've had with these talks is trying to separate these categories. They can't really be... A separation of these categories in many ways is kind of a, a synthetic separation. It's not an organic separation. How do you separate sufficiency from authority? You know, authority and sufficiency, really, they're, 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 um, they're, they're different. These are different subjects for sure, but they're so interrelated that I'm just going to talk about them uh, together. But back to the resurrection, let me connect some more dots. How does the, re- the resurrection of Jesus prove that Scripture is God-breathed? Uh, well, if the Scriptures are the ultimate authority, as I'm arguing they are, um, and I'm arguing that, uh, that they're the ultimate authority because they are the very words that have been breathed out by God. God is the ultimate authority. Um, then they are our starting point. The Scriptures are our starting point. 
Every argument has a starting point, a place where no higher authority can be obtained. So let me flesh this out for you from personal experience. Years ago, I didn't use the scriptures as a starting point because I didn't know any better. And I actually, this is what I would typically say. People have been asking these questions forever, by the way. These aren't new developments. And I, when we had our music store way back then, I mean, I'd only been a believer for just a short period of time. Man, I'm so excited about Jesus. I'm telling everybody about Jesus. And, and I thought all I'd do is just explain it. And people would be like, wow, this is wonderful. And this is just going to be great. And man, I'm out there getting beat up left and right by everybody. And I thought I'd, you know, I heard somebody say, listen, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God because the Bible is comprised of 66 books written by over 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, and when it's correctly interpreted, it agrees on every area of life. How many have heard that before? That was my line, man. I heard that one time, I'm like, got it, <laughs> it's my line. I'm going to use it, man, that's great, because what does it prove? It proves there's one author, because no two of us agree on everything. We don't. We can be from the same street corner growing up as kids and lived every day of our lives together and we don't agree on everything. But the fact that the Bible, when it's properly interpreted, agrees on everything, proves that there's one author. And I'm like, man, this is great. Um, it's, it's, it's all so very, very true, but guess what? I never saw a single convert from that line. There was no converts. I wanted to see people come to faith and there's no converts. Um, it would be some time later before I realized I was de denying the Bible's sufficiency. I didn't know it. I didn't know I was doing that. I thought I was doing the right thing. But I was denying the Bible's sufficiency. Here's what I was doing. I didn't realize it, of course, but I was, I was doing this. I thought if I'm going to prove the Bible to be the Word of God, I would have to do it with something other than the Gospel. I don't know, that's what I was hearing all the time, and that's what I was doing. This was an unconscious denial of both the Bible's authority and sufficiency. Listen to these verses, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that verse, don't we? I think, imagine everyone in the room knows this verse. Um, this verse teaches us that the Bible is different than any other book in the respect that the, the, the Bible is alive. It's alive. And it's able to divide our soul, in meaning that it's able to open our soul up and lay it bare before it. Uh, the, Calvin used to speak of the, of the Bible as being a mirror. It's a mirror. Uh, what do, when we look into a mirror, what do we see? We see a reflection of ourselves. And so much, that's so true, isn't it, when we read the Bible? Um, Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This verse teaches us that the Bible is able to revive the soul. We got a lot of souls that need reviving. And the Bible is what God uses to revive the soul, the Holy Spirit working with the Bible. Uh, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes... In fact, why don't you turn there? Because I'm going to look at these verses a little bit. I'll read verse 17 while you're turning to Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We probably know this verse. Uh, most of you heard me quote this verse a zillion times. Um, faith comes from what? Hearing. 
Hearing what? Hearing the Word of Christ. In other words, faith comes from hearing the Scriptures. In other words, it comes from being exposed to the message of the Gospel. So, let's bring in the context of this verse. If you look back to verse 13, Romans 10, 13, Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, to call upon the Lord, everybody at Tri-State Community Church here this morning knows what it means to call upon the Lord because we've been looking at that, haven't we? In Genesis 4 and verse 26, we've been studying Genesis verse by verse. And in Genesis 4 verse 26, we're told about the birth of Enoch. And at the birth of Enoch, people began to do what? call upon the name of the Lord. And we've looked, look at what's that phrase mean? And we've done a survey of the Old Testament looking at what that phrase means. And we've discovered from Psalm 116 that, well, Psalm 116 uses that so extensively, we see that to call upon the name of the Lord is to have a commitment to worship and dependence upon God, isn't it? Which would entail everything, would entail trust and dependence. Um, so everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who is depending upon God and worshiping Him uh, will be saved. Now, listen to the argument from there. In verse 14, Paul says, But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? See. And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? In other words, how is someone to become a believer? They must hear. Okay, what must they hear? They must hear the message of Scripture. The statement that I just made reference to, namely that the Bible is comprised of 66 books written over the course of uh, 1,500 years by more than 40 authors on three different continents and agrees on every subject uh, known to life when per perfectly interpreted. I've said it so many times I can say it really fast. That's a true statement and it's useful at times, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Listen to, turn back to Romans 1 and verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. Oftentimes called the theme statement of Romans, the thematic statement of Romans. That's debated, but um, nevertheless, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It's the power, dunamai. It's the word we get dynamite from. Dunamai. It's the power. Um, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the power of salvation comes from the gospel. The gospel is the central message of the scriptures. Therefore, the scriptures are sufficient in granting faith. You see where we're going with this? Here's another verse. Uh, some of you are still looking for, for Romans, but go to 1 Peter. <laughs> you can skip the one you're looking for. Don't worry about it. Go to 1 Peter. First Peter, if you've got study Bibles, it's, not, it's hard to get to there with a study Bible, isn't it? I mean, by the time you find a place, the speaker's moved on to the next verse, you know? All you do is look for stuff. But First Peter 1.23, Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? You see, the Bible's alive. He calls it alive, says it's alive, doesn't he? Through the living and abiding Word of God. How were we born again? We're born again by, by way of the Scriptures. Holy Spirit working through the Scriptures. You know, the, book is com the Bible is comprised of 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors. Properly interpreted degrees on every area of life. That's not the message of the Bible. That's a description of the Bible. 
It's not the message of the Bible. You see that? And it's going it's, it's to fail you. It's going to fail you. We can't do ministry with a description of the Bible. We do ministry with the Bible, you see. Um, one more, also from Peter, this time Second Peter. We were talking about this at the break. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now some of you will be aware that Peter is speaking about the event we call the transfiguration. And that's when, uh, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. Uh, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain and Jesus is, is transfigured in a partial view of his glory. Uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, they, 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 they see Jesus' glory. A partial view of it, a full view of it would have destroyed these men. They see a partial view of it. They see His glory. Now Peter's reflecting on that. Notice what he says in verse 19. Notice this. He says, we have something more sure. More sure than what? More sure than what we saw on the mountain. We have something more sure. What could be possibly be more sure than what they saw on the mountain? A prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible has been superintended by God. The message has been carried by God. The Holy Spirit has superintended the communication that otherwise would have gotten distorted and we would have forgot. You see, but see, we see what 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 Peter is saying to us is that the scriptures are more sure than if we had been on the mountain and seen Jesus were transfigured with our very own eyes. What we have in our hands is more sure than being on the mountain with Peter, James, and John and seeing the transfiguration of Jesus. We often think that would be the opposite, don't we? Oh, I'd want to be on the mountain if I could be on the mountain, man. I'd have this great faith. Well, Peter, James, and John come down with a defective faith off that mountain. That's proven. At the crucifixion of Jesus, they scatter from Him. We have a more sure word. The Bible is more sure than even being on the mountain. So I maintain that, yes, I'm arguing that the Bible is the Word of God. And I will argue this from the Bible itself because the Bible is the ultimate authority. We can't go any further than God's Word. That's where our argument starts. He is the starting point. There's no higher authority to which we can appeal. Now, let me return to my five-word answer. Why should we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? There are many reasons. I'll give you a big one. You can remember. You can take home. It's a five-word answer. And everybody, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, I mean the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's how I might present this to someone. I thought I might give you an example. How would I go about presenting this to someone? Um, you can, you can derive from this a long answer. You can derive from this a short answer. But here's what I would do typically if I had a little bit of time. If I had a half an hour at Tim Hortons with somebody, okay, over a cup of coffee, I would turn them to Genesis 3.15. That might not be a verse you would think of first and foremost, but um, anybody, I mean, go ahead. We've got just a little bit of time. Anybody, why would I go to Genesis 3.15? I ask this because we've been studying it so carefully. It's the first gospel presentation, yeah. 
But it's in, what's the context of Genesis 3.15? What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. The fall. Yes. And let's turn to Genesis 3.15 with me. And as you're turning to Genesis 3.15, the context is Adam and Eve have been tempted by Satan. They submitted to that temptation and they rebelled against God. They fell from their state of innocence and when they fell, they all, we all fell with them. And this is what we call the bad news of the gospel. Uh, for, for years and years and years, the church has been skipping the bad news of the gospel. And it's been disastrous. Because now we have a culture that doesn't see any need for salvation from anything. We've been skipping the bad news. It's our, it's, it's the church's fault. We've been skipping the bad news of the gospel. Don't skip the bad news. Because the gospel doesn't make any sense without the bad news. Um, don't skip the bad news. Back to the garden. Adam and Eve, okay, they, they rebel against God. God comes into the garden. He speaks to Adam. He speaks to Eve. And in verse 15, he is speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what we have here is the promise of a Savior. We have a promise of a Savior being made. Three chapters into the Bible, and there's a promise of a Messiah. Only three chapters in. So if we had a New Year's resolution, we're going to read the whole Bible, surely we made it to Genesis 3. I mean, usually we make it to Genesis 3, don't we? Anybody slip up not even make it to Genesis 3? So you got to the promise of a Savior... I mean, most people say, man, I got out into, man, I got out into like, uh, oh boy, I got out into numbers and like, whoa. Okay. Well, you made it to Genesis 3. Um, and there's the promise of a Savior, one born of the woman who shall bruise the head of the serpent. Now, what I'll typically do is I'll say it along the way, many details are given about the identity and person of the Savior. For example, turn to Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. Now, this is approximately 3,500 years ago. Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses lived, I mean, some scholars will say around 1460. Some go a little further than that. Just for the sake of argument, I think you can tell the person you're talking to, this is about, this is, this is over 3,000 years ago. It's 3,500 or so years ago. God speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And if you skip down to verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And this is the Lord speaking. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command you. So here the Lord not only promises to raise up a prophet, but he also promises to put his words in the prophet's mouth. So we've got a Messiah and we've got a prophet. Okay, one and the same person, one and the same individual here. Now, turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. This is about 3,000 years ago. King David lived around 1,000, uh, about 1,000 B.C. approximately. So we're looking at over 3,000 years ago. The Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, in verses 12 and 13, He says that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. 
Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, here we see the Lord promises a king in the genealogical line of David. um, In the genealogical line of David. Some of you are really familiar with these passages. Some of you may be new. Okay, about 2,700 years ago, Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 52, verses 13 and onward. This is one of four of what we call suffering servant passages. They were given that name by commentary. It was writing in the late 1800s. Servant passages. Sometimes we call this the suffering servant passage. Isaiah 52, verse 13 and forward. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at his appearance, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. As I read these verses, just think of the passion narratives as I'm reading these verses. Think about the passion of Jesus. Verse 3, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Listen, we want folks looking at these verses. That's all part of this exercise. We want people looking at these verses. I might not share it. Depending on where someone's at, I might not share all this with them at once. Give them just a little bit at a time. But get them in the book. You know, get them in the book. I mean... At least one of you will know my particular method is getting them in the book, right? Not to draw any attention to anybody who might be in the third row. Um, we get people in the book um, is what we do. And you get people reading the book. Um, we want folks looking and thinking about this. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You think of the trial of Jesus, he was silent. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I mean, you read that, and if you're familiar with the the ending of each gospel, you're hearing a lot of stuff, pretty Pretty precise prophecy, aren't you? Um, that's Isaiah. Um, the psalmist. Psalm, you don't need to turn here. By the time you get there, I'll be moving on to something else. But Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. I'm just giving you a sample. of uh, Scholars say there are about 200 of these in the Old Testament. I'm just giving you a sample. Um, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Many of you are aware that the Roman soldiers... They did not break Jesus' legs. Jesus is crucified with two other people, right? Two two criminals. They break the the legs of the criminals, but they don't break Jesus' legs. That's prophecy coming true. You see see the accuracy of that prophecy. And John 19.36 says this, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. It's not not conjecture on my part that that I'm... saying, hey, look at the interpretation. This is the divine interpretation that we get from John. John's interpreting this for us. 
There's simply no way for anyone to fabricate this. I mean, look at the great precision and detail of this prophecy. Psalm 22 is a good place to start. If you can't remember all these, just remember Psalm 22 and get familiar with Psalm 22. You know, verse 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. About a thousand years later, Jesus was prepared to be crucified. Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, 29, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. A thousand years later, as Jesus was being crucified, Matthew tells us, in Matthew 27, 39, all those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, being fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus, a thousand years removed from Psalm 22's prophecy. Um, uh, Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. On that glorious third day, Jesus rose from the tomb, escaping corruption, didn't He? Uh, you can go on and on and on. Um, many verses could be added to this, but clearly we see the Scripture spoke in great detail and with great precision about the coming of a Savior. Now see, I like to go this way because what am I doing? What, who's the subject of what I'm talking about in every one of these verses? Who's the subject? It's Jesus. I want to get them to Jesus. I don't want to argue about what some famous dead guy said to another famous dead guy. I want to get to Jesus. As all these arguments are going to get you off track. I want to get to Jesus. I want to take people to Jesus. I want to get to Jesus. Jesus is the healer. I want to get people to Jesus. So that's what I'm always doing. As soon as they get off track, I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, because it's back here. We're getting off track. Let's get back to Jesus. I'm not saying that all these other things aren't important. Don't santer on all that other stuff because you're not going to get nothing done. All you're going to do is study for nothing. You're going to get nothing done. Um, so we see all this prophecy has taken place exactly the way it was said it would take place. And by doing this, we're getting people into the Word. We're getting them into the Bible. We're getting them familiar with the Bible. And we're relying on the Bible to do the work. You see. We're relying on the Word of God to do the work of God. I stole that. I love that line. I stole it from one of the basics conferences uh, that Alistair Begg uh, Parkside Church had. I stole it right from him. So I guess if I cite it, I'm not stealing it, right? I did cite it. I don't know. I hope it's recording. <laughs> I, I did cite it. So no plagiarism there. I stole it from him. Um, remember what the Lord said through Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11, you know these verses. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I can say this with the authority of Almighty God, that what I just read to you will not return to Him void of what He purposes for it to accomplish. And that what, what gets accomplished with that reading is God's business, not mine. My job is to read it, but I know something is going to happen with it. Something just did. I, I, might, I, I probably don't know what. But again, that's God's business. God's Word is authoritative and it is sufficient to accomplish God's purposes. And God promises that He will always accomplish His purposes with His Word. It's not going to come back to Him void. It's not going to come back to Him. So what I'm saying, you know, 
What I'm saying is the, the Bible here is its own self-witness. And the Bible is its own self-evidence. That's really what I'm... Sometimes you'll hear talked about the Bible's self-witness or the Bible's self-evidence or the self-evidencing of the Scriptures, as it's sometimes said. That, that, that's basically what I'm talking about. And that is to say that the Bible everywhere bears witness to itself as the ultimate authority. It doesn't seek to prove this. It assumes it. You ever notice that? It's not like we have a book in the Bible. Okay, and this particular book is the book that proves the Bible is the Word of God. We don't have a book like that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't do that. And we shouldn't expect it to, should we? Should we expect God to speak and say, oh, by the way, this is God speaking. Um, let, me, let me go on a little bit and prove that I'm God. I mean, really? It's out of touch with reality. It's the one who created and sustains the universe speaking. He needs no introduction. He, he needs no introduction. Romans 119 teaches, Romans 119 and following teaches that we all know he exists. So he needs no introduction. Um, he doesn't seek to prove himself. Um, he doesn't seek to prove his existence, nor does the Bible seek to prove uh, itself as the Word of God. It just assumes it's the Word of God and it just states that it's the Word. Thus says the Lord. Um, we have, and that's another way that we could argue for the authenticity of Scriptures. It's the thus saith the Lord. And we could go through that and look at all the thus saith the Lord's and look at the fulfillment of all of the thus saith the Lord's. How do we know a true prophet is speaking? We're told, the Bible tells us. How do you know a true prophet is speaking? If a prophet speaks and the Word comes true, then it's of God. If a prophet speaks and it doesn't come true, it's not from God. So we could look at all the prophecies that has come true, and we could argue about the Bible from the thus saith the Lord sayings. You see, there's many ways we could do this. But I wanted to leave you with one way. When you go out that door, you've got one answer, one word answer, and you've got a five word answer. What's the one word answer? Resurrection. What's the five word answer? Yeah. And you can do it today. And that's what we want. Um, we want to be able to do this today. Uh, the Bible everywhere bears witness to itself, evidence that it's the true Word of God. And our ancient forefathers understood this. But since the Enlightenment, we've exalted personal opinion and human reason as the ultimate authority. That's what we've done. And God is the only one who can bear witness to Himself. Um, to what greater authority can we appeal? Now, I've been saying this over and over and over again, but I haven't proven it yet. So let me, let me prove it to you. Um, Jesus teaches us this ultimate authority stuff. In John 8, uh, if you will turn to John 8 with me, uh, we'll see a principle that Jesus uses here. He's using the principle that the Word of God, or we might say that Jesus Himself, or Jesus and the Father, are the ultimate authority. In John chapter 8, in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Uh, verse 13, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You see that? Jesus is bearing witness about himself. Okay, Jesus responds in verse 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Now skip down to verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. Verse 18. 
I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. I'd like to have heard that. Uh, That would have been a moment. What's Jesus doing? He's appealing to the ultimate authority. It's not human reason. It's God. And he's also claiming divinity because he's appealing to himself. Verse 18, he says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself. Then he appeals to the witness of the Father, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He's appealing to the ultimate authority. And I'm suggesting that we do the same. Now, we find Jesus doing this all over and over again. If you look to Matthew 19.3, for example. Matthew 19.3. Let's give you a minute to turn there. Matthew 19 and verse 3. And just uh, um, verse 3 gives us enough of the context. We know what's going on. The Pharisees come up to Jesus in verse 3. And they decide they're going to test him. They ask him, you know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, Jesus responds to the question in verse 4 and following. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let us let not man separate. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What authority is Jesus appealing to here to answer the question? He's appealing to Scripture, isn't he? He's appealing to Scripture. He's actually appealing, very obviously, he's appealing to Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 5.2. In other words, Jesus settles the issue by appealing to Scripture. How does Jesus settle issues? He appeals to Scripture. It's the ultimate authority. Um... He does this with the issue of the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 5. He does it with the issue of human tradition, trumping the Word of God in Matthew 15, verses 3 to 6. He does it in cleansing the temple in Matthew 21, 13, and to the rejection of himself in Matthew 21, 42, just to name a few examples. That's what he does everywhere. This is his modus operandi. This is his methodology. When presented with a question, he refers to the authority to handle the question, which is the authority of the Word of God. And... He has a commitment that that is sufficient, doesn't he? And we're called to be imitators of Jesus. So in conclusion of all of this, I mean, in my presentation of the reliability, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, I say, look to Jesus. I say, gee, it took you three hours to say that. He could have said that at the beginning. I might have sounded like a wise guy saying that at the beginning, you know. Um, but it all comes down to who we believe Jesus is. Remember what I said at the start. It really comes down to, you know, who we believe Jesus is. Obviously, if we had more time, we could talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and all this. But you can see from everything I've said, the Holy Spirit is, is, is essential to everything. He's essential to all of this in every aspect, in every capacity. Without the witness of the Holy Spirit, we'll never see Jesus as the Scriptures present Him, nor will we ever trust in the reliability, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture without the Holy Spirit. We just simply won't. But I've sought to show that the Holy Spirit delights to work. And I'll just say this, the Holy Spirit delights to work. You know, I come here this morning excited because the Holy Spirit's working. 
I know he's working. He delights to work. He delights in glorifying Jesus. He delights in glorifying the Father. Jesus delights in glorifying the Holy Spirit and the Father. And the Father delights in glorifying the Holy Spirit and His Son. They delight in glorifying one another. So we're taking up a work that God delights in when we undertake this work. And we're taking up a work that heaven delights in. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. You see, this, 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 is, this is stuff that heaven delights in. This is heavenly stuff. Uh, it should bolster our confidence to want to do this. So I think we could be greatly encouraged as we go forth. And let me add, the Bible is not only sufficient to bring us salvation, but it's sufficient to lead us in every area of godliness. If you return to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, you know, we see this, you know, namely that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? I'll give you a moment to turn there. It's profitable for teaching. See, if we want to teach, the, the Scriptures are profitable for that. It's, it's profitable for reproof. It's a mirror that reveals our faults to us. For correction. Okay, we see our faults. What do we do about it? The, the Scriptures are sufficient to show us what to do about it. And for training in righteousness. And we want to live holy lives. We're called to live holy lives in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures are sufficient for that. It's not like the Scriptures get us started and then we've got to appeal to all these other things. The Scripture is sufficient for all of this, each step of the way, all the way to glorification. And what will we have in heaven? The Word of God. Not like we're going to get new Bibles when we get to heaven. <laughs> okay, now you guys get a new Bible. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> here's another Bible. Here, I've been holding out. I don't think so. Um, so let me close with the words of Luke, chapter 16 and verse 31. And it comes in the context of a story that Jesus tells, a parable. He said there's a rich man and there's this poor guy named Lazarus. And Lazarus is a beggar. He's at the gates. Rich man drives past him every day. And big Lazarus is just begging for something to fall from the scraps at the table. And we're told that Lazarus was a very, very sickly man, that the dogs actually would show compassion on him. And lick his sores, and um, the rich man dies. He goes to uh, Gehenna, and Lazarus dies, and he goes to uh, heaven, and he's with Abraham in heaven. And the rich man looks um, across the abyss and sees Lazarus and Abraham, and he calls out to Abraham, and he says, listen, um, send Lazarus back to my brothers to warn them about this place. And Abraham responds by saying, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, your brothers have their Bibles. Now, I think we can hear the, I think we can hear the, the rich man saying, but wait a second. I know I had my Bible too, but if someone comes back from the dead, surely they'll listen. They'll explain it away a hundred times, maybe even a thousand times. Jesus says, listen, if we won't listen to our Bibles, if we won't believe our Bibles, we won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. 
And if that doesn't attest to the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, I can't think of what, what could. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that, Lord, we've been able to be disciplined and get through all these uh, pages this morning and to cover all this ground. And uh, We're all in different places, Father, as You know so well. Uh, for those, this is new. Some, this is so new too, and much of this is going to fall to the floor. But Father, we know that, Lord, You will allow us and enable us to hold on to what You're pleased for us to hold on to. For others, this is, this is more familiar. I pray, Lord, that these uh, three hours together have been profitable for everyone, and that, Father, as we walk with You, you'll, you'll put more and more of this together for us. We pray, Father, You'll use us now that we've studied these things, Lord. We ask, Father, that You would use us, not to make us preachers who run around and um, beat people over the head with our Bibles, but that we simply, as You open up doors and in general conversation and as opportunities arise, Father, we will have some answers. Uh, we'll be able to say that we believe in the Bible because of the resurrection of Jesus and that, you know, all these errors that are supposed to be in the scriptures, it's just not a, it's not a, it's really kind of a deceptive statement when we begin to look at the facts and we'll be able to say, listen, the authorities, we'll reason ourselves in our, in our methodology that, Lord, your word is really truly the ultimate authority and we'll just get more familiar with your word so that we can tell the story from your word and, and Father, we know that your word will never return to you void of what you purpose for it. And Father, we'll trust in Your Word to do the work that, Lord, it's Your work. The Holy Spirit must open hearts and the Holy Spirit must sanctify those hearts. And Father, we recognize that after we have done this, we, our, work, our, work is, our work is done. Uh, it is Your work. So Father, may we trust in You. Uh, we pray, Father, that our faith in the Scriptures have been encouraged and that, Father, we, we have a, just a renewed um, a renewed conviction that we can really trust the Bible to do your work. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for your wondrous word and for our, our Lord and Savior who came and stepped in our place and died that we might have life. Father, we thank you for the glorious resurrection that we've mentioned so many times this morning, that in Christ Jesus, he is truly the resurrection. And when he was raised, so were all his children in this sense. So, Father, we thank you uh, for the wonderful and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.